0: come back to your seats. We're going to continue on with our scripture reading, and it comes to us from the book of Deuteronomy this week. And so give your attention as Lori Lou shares uh, the story of God and God's people.
1: Deuteronomy 26, 1 through 11. When you have come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, You shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. You shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, today I declare to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar of the Lord your God, you shall make this response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor. He went down into Egypt and lived there as an alien, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. When the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us by imposing hard labor on us, we cried to the Lord, the God of our ancestors. The Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with a terrifying display of power and with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground that you, O Lord, have given me. You shall set it down before the Lord your God and bow down before the Lord your God. Then you, together with the Levites and the aliens who reside among you, shall celebrate with all the bounty that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Thank you, Lori Lou. All right, well, we are in the season of Lent, and as we enter into this time of looking at what the scripture may have for us today, I want to begin by just locating us in where we are in the story. So as this year began, we started with the season of epiphany, and we talked a lot about ways that we as a community might live in this brilliant, blazing, shining epiphany light of God. So really ordinary things that uh, help make up our common life together, we talked about. We talked about the leadership of our church, and then we talked about volunteers and opportunities to be involved on our volunteer teams, and then we talked about community, and then we've talked the last few weeks about finances, and one of the things we said was that when texts come up in the lectionary, which guides our, ser- our scriptures and our sermons, uh, then we're gonna be uh, responsive to those, and we'll talk about them, uh, and, and so here we go. Uh, right after we said that, we've got two texts in a row that both lead us into some of these concepts around finances, around our resources, around money, so this morning, I'm going to offer us a few thoughts on money, uh, which will help guide our Lenten uh, participation this year. And then uh, next week, we're going to talk about the story of the Mount of Transfiguration, which is a whole different animal and will take us in a very different direction. Uh, so let's, let's enter into this final week as we, as we talk about money and our relationship to money, which is if we are to take Jesus seriously at the heart of the spiritual life. Jesus talks about money, I think, more than he talks about sin. Uh, It comes up all the time if we're paying attention to the teachings of Jesus. And so, uh, we'll get into it. And we began last week. If you weren't here, let me give you a quick catch-up. We introduced a framework that we'll use to guide ourselves through Lent. And the framework uh, that we want to ask ourselves is hey, how do I get in on this participatory life that God invites us into? And so we sat with this idea that there is a flow of accumulation, meaning sometimes in life we have less, sometimes in life we have more, uh, and we've all been in probably seasons of both of those things. But regardless of if I have a lot or a little is not necessarily indicative of whether or not I am participating in the big story of God, in the way of God in the world. God is always inviting us to cooperate, to co labor with him to participate in his way of being in the world. And so we can then enter into the wider flow, whether we have a lot or we have a little, into the wider home of the flow of participation. So we've been asking ourselves, am I living in the far country of scarcity, where deep down I have these narratives that there is not enough, that I am at stake, that I am not safe, uh, and, and therefore I've got to accumulate as much as I can and hold on for dear life because there isn't enough for me and you? And of course, very few of us would say that out loud, but but sometimes we live that way in our hearts. Or how can I get in more on the Father's house of abundance where we are invited home from the far country like the younger son was, invited home to the feast like the older son was, And we participate there in the Father's abundant goodness. We get in on the wider world. We join the general dance and we say, I get to show up to this world with you and for you. And there seems to be, as we've talked about, this sense where the more I am open-handed toward others the more I am able to receive with open hands the life of God for me. And this shows up certainly in our relationship with money, but of course it shows up in other categories as well, judgment and justice, giving and forgiving. And this is not a formula we leverage, right? It's not like, oh, let me be open-handed to you so I can get more over here. That's manipulative, (laughs) right? Uh, And and that's, uh, that's not what this is all about. But instead what we're saying is we want to enter into the mysterious paradox of life in the house of the Father father where both of these things are true at the same time all things are yours all things are yours and also all the things are the father's right he says to the older son you are always with me and and all that is mine is yours and yet at the same time of course everything belongs to the father and so we want to say yes to both of those things, and so that's where we begin our conversation this morning. And and last week in the prodigal son story, there was this sudden windfall of an inheritance that the younger son and the older son received, and that windfall of inheritance actually then revealed the larger operating framework that was underneath their worldview, the way they related to money said a lot about the condition of their hearts. We're going to flip way back to the left in the biblical story now, and we'll go from the New Testament all the way back to the Old Testament, and we find ourselves in this story that Lori Lou just read, where the Israelites have gathered on the plains of Moab, and they are overlooking the Promised Land. For 40 years, they have wandered through the wilderness. Talk about a Lenten season, right? We get 40 days. They had 40 years of wandering, of hunger, of thirst, of struggle, of wondering if they should just go back to Egypt. And finally, after all of that, they and their community are gathered overlooking the promised land. And as they're about to go in, there must have been this sense of, after all of the struggle, here is provision. After all of the wandering, We have been given this promised land, this promised place. We are home. And so this sense of excitement and anticipation and also gratitude must have just been welling up inside of them. And so uh, this became a significant story for the, the Jewish people for their tradition, and it's a story they came back to over and over and over. When you have come into the land that the Lord God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it, and you settle it, right? That's promise right there. They had been waiting for that for 40 years. They finally enter it, and then when that happens, you shall take some of the first of the fruit of the ground, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. And so as we enter into this, what we get right away is this other instructive paradox for how we might relate to our money. Uh, This became a foundational text for how the people of God related to their land, to their resources, to God, to themselves. And the paradox becomes this, that generosity in this text is required, right? Uh, There's a, like, it's not really a suggestion in the way this text shows up. Uh, it is not an option so much as it is an obedience. And, uh, you know, it says, you shall do this, right? Not like, you might want to think about this, or best practice would be this, or if you're feeling like it, it's like, you shall do this. I don't know about you, I bristle against that. Like, if I'm honest, when I read that in the text, I'm like, you can't tell me what to do. (laughs) You know, God, you can't tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. Uh, And I think if we're honest, uh, a lot of times we feel that way. It feels constricting to be told this thing, right? But if we place it in the context of the story, I think what God is up to here with mandated generosity becomes a bit more clear. And so what's happening, remember, is that they're entering out of this land where they were utterly dependent on God. They're being given a land that will produce on its own, and they're entering into this whole new world where they are surrounded by other cultures, by other worldviews, by other ways of being in the world on all sides. And so, uh, at the heart of these Old Testament mandates is the protection against idolatry, Often, the mandated obedience in the Old Testament has to do not so much with morality modifications, not with behavior management, not with sin management, but rather with a fatherly parental protection saying, trust me, you're about to enter into this new place, and you have no idea what is going to be coming at you when you do this. Because when you're wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, you have to trust God. Like, who else is going to make the manna come out of the the heavens, right? Who else is going to make the water come out of the rock? Who else is going to make the cloud of pillar and fire move? But now they're brought into this place where they have this fertile land, and the rain falls on the just or the unjust. Either way, the crops are going to grow, and it becomes possible in the inherent provision God is giving them for them to forget God, right? Right? And so if we enter into a promised place, a middle-class place, a milk and honey place, we find that it becomes real easy to forget the God who provided the place in the first place. And so it's as if the Father is saying here, trust me, trust me, because if you can open your hand right from the start— before you learn to cling to these things, then what you're gonna find is that you'll be able to possess the land so that the land won't possess you. You'll be able to possess the resources so the resources won't possess you. And so, fast forward to the place we find ourselves, we're not under Old Testament law, Jesus has fulfilled the law, we're not living under that covenant, and yet, though we do not have Asherah poles and golden calves and fertility idols around us, we have all kinds of our own idols, don't we? And if it's true that God needed to protect them back then, perhaps that may still have some relevance in our life as well. And so what I want to say is that one way of thinking about giving is that it is actually resistance against the powers and principalities of our culture. Because we are constantly told, you don't have enough, and you need that, and you need a little bit more of that, and you got to have this, and hey, no one else is going to look out for you. Climb the ladder, look out for number one, et cetera, et cetera. And so there are these invisible, powerful forces, the New Testament says, that are against human flourishing, and we cannot see them, but boy, we can see them, right? They're all, like, it's very evident, if we look around at our world, that idolatry abounds. Jesus called one of those forces mammon, and it's this idea that I've got to cling to my stuff. I've got to, see, it is possible for us to have stuff, but it is possible for stuff to have us, And so when we live open-handed, it's a way of saying, I'm going to resist that thing that says it is never enough. And, And so the Old Testament, yes, mandates giving, and in the New Testament, what we find is a disconcertingly radical call to continued generosity, right? Like, it's disconcerting. If we look at the New Testament seriously, like there is a consistent witness to this, and I think it has to do with the fact that we also have found ourselves entering into this world where it can be very easy to forget God, and living open-handed is one of the ways we resist that. Okay, so that's the first part of the paradox. Generosity is required. But here's the second part, and the part I want to get to is this. Generosity is also inspired. And I think what's fascinating about this text from Deuteronomy of all places that we looked at is, is this part, if you go to the next one for me, this part that shows up in verses four through seven. When the priest takes the basket from your hand and sets it down before the altar, you make this response. A wandering Aramean was my ancestor, right? And they start telling their story. You see this? They're coming to make their offering, and a part of their process of offering was to tell their own story of redemption, I used to have this ancestor named Jacob, named Joseph, and he went into Egypt, and the Egyptians treated us harshly with hard labor, and and, and some of us were wandering through the desert, and some of us were on ocean ships, and some of us were in prison, and some of us were sick, and we cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard our voice, and he saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression, and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he saved us, and so if all that is true in my story, if I am the recipient, the inheritor of a generous story, how else could I then respond other than with a generous, lavish response? All this is is welling up inside of me. I don't need giving to be binding on me. It's like blossoming inside of me as the response to this life I've been invited into. And so uh, the act of offering resources here is connected to the redemption story, It's flowing from redemption memory, the long slavery, the burning bush, the Red Sea parting, the promise fulfilled, salvation shows up in our story in these myriad of ways, and we are the recipients of that, and so how else could we respond but with open hands? It's as if God is saying, this do in remembrance of me, right? Do this in remembrance of me. And so our offering becomes a liturgical act against the backdrop of our journey. And so what is the salvific story for you? Uh, What are the redemption moments for you? And I'm mindful of the fact that some of us sit in this room today going, I don't know. And in fact, right now I need a redemption story. I need a salvific story. And, And I join you in that place as well. But uh, where have we seen the mighty hand, the outstretched arm, and where, that might, where might that cause us to stretch out our own hands in openness? Where have we been invited home from the wilderness and the far country and into a milk-and-honey reality? And therefore, how can we join that participatory dance and like throw our own fatted calves on the grill, too, and join the party? Um, consider this, uh, this. This quote from Nick Carter is going to come up on the screen here. He says this, to be able to offer first fruits at all, which would be the work of a year of planting and harvesting, means the community not only has access to fertile ground, but that they have settled in it. Possessing land is the necessary prerequisite to any offering of first fruit. It is the emotional and spiritual taproot of what the offerings mean, and these actions cannot be understood apart from it. In other words, what he's saying is, for 40 years, you haven't had any land, and God says, now offer the first fruits. Well, you couldn't offer any first fruits until you had a land that you could settle in. So it is out of the overflow of the provision that they are invited into this act. And so in our younger years, perhaps we needed the requirements, and in our adolescence, perhaps we needed the boundaries. But as we mature, we find our actions become the overflow of our inner motivations and a manifestation of the overflow of our stories. Rich Valotis, I think, sums up the discussion well. He says, over the course of my life, there are times where generously I gave to God financially and God blessed me. There were times when I didn't. Give generously, and God blessed me. Generosity is not about controlling God's hands. God is free to bless. Generosity is about living free from attachments. It is about our maturity. So, we'll start to wind this up. I want to get practical for a second. Um, Our relationship with money is at the heart of our spiritual lives, and so I'm mindful that when I talk about this, uh, I'm wearing three hats at the same time. At least I'm actually wearing more than this, but one of the hats that I'm wearing is the, the pastor hat, which is this, that I recognize that when we talk about money, money is the dot that connects the complex stories of our lives. Like I bet everybody in this room has deep joy and deep pain in their story that relates to some sort of money uh, part of your story. And so it is a uniquely stressful, uniquely capable thing in our lives that can work for great good in the world and work for great bad in the world. It is in our bones. It's in our dreams. It's in our shame. It's this loaded thing. And so if we talk about money and it feels a little awkward, well, of course it does. Because look at all that it's attached to in all of our lives. And all the more so we have to just name that and say, that's part of it. So as I talk about this, I'm mindful. You might be sitting here today going, like, I don't even know where my next paycheck's coming from. Like, we're all bringing all this stuff, and that's okay. But then at the same time, there's this prophetic role, which is to say, and we are called to faithful response to God and faithful response against the powers of the age that we live in, and so, uh, you know, we cannot serve God and money. We need blunt reminders about that. And then finally, as a priest, I have this privilege, this Levitical, liturgical act to offer up our offerings to God. You bring your, alt- your gift in the basket, you set it down, I raise it up onto the altar, and so giving then is a-, a matter of our stories, and it is also a matter of us obeying and following God, and it is also a matter of worship and prayer, and all of that is the tension we hold. Uh, I want to offer us a practice as we, as we move into this, or a way of thinking about our practice of generosity. Uh, we find in Lent that we can be emotionally moved. That doesn't necessarily change our actions for very long, right? So we got to pair the emotional move with the practice, with some sort of way of showing up in a habit that helps us live into a new way of thinking rather than trying to think our way into a new way of living, which doesn't usually work. Um, And so I want to offer a really practical framework that's been helpful for Holly and I as we've thought about our giving. Ultimately, giving is a matter of discernment. It's not something I want to prescribe. I'm very wary. In fact, if anybody tells you that, like, be wary of that, right? We get to have a lived relationship with the Holy Spirit where we respond out of what is emphasized in our hearts. So having said that... uh, I wonder what it might look like for sacrificial, for intentional, for cheerful giving to show up in your life in each of these three categories, because at the end of our text today, we get three categories to give to, and these three categories show up throughout the Old Testament, throughout the the Torah, and I think all three are important. So in in Holly and I's giving, we regularly give to all three of the categories I'm about to name, Uh, and the first is the house of worship, right? So it says, you shall set down your gift and bow down before the Lord your God, and then it mentions the Levites, which were those dedicated to caring for the house of God or the place of worship, right? So you've got this first category of of giving to the place, your community of faith, your worshiping community. And then you get the second category that also the aliens who reside among you, or the orphans, or the marginalized, so we want to give to the poor as well, no surprise there. What does it look like for me to be involved in giving to the poor locally, and globally. And then perhaps the surprising category and my favorite category is the final one, which is parties, (laughs) parties. Uh, If you pay attention to what the Old Testament tithe is about, a chunk of it was reserved to travel to the feasts and festivals and there throw a giant party it's a way of entering into the story that we are a part of. It's a way of saying, this is all a generous, abundant story, and I want to go way up on the flow of participation here, right? And so Holly and I, every month, have part of our giving set aside to throw parties with people. It says this, spend the money, this is the tithe that it's talking about, spend the money for whatever you wish, oxen, sheep, wine, strong drink. It is possible I've thrown a party in my time that had some strong drink, but it's just scripture. I'm just following what the Bible says. Uh, Or whatever. (laughs) Whatever you desire. You shall eat there in the presence of the Lord. You and your household rejoicing together. Isn't it amazing that part of our giving is an invitation to throw a party because there's more than enough? And so what might it look like? And here's where discernment enters and here's what will end. How are you called into this? Who are your people of faith to support? Who are the specific poor and marginalized that are emphasized in your heart to give to? Because you can't give to everything. What's, what's rising up inside of you? And what parties do you want to throw? And who do you want to invite? And how might you be intentional in that as part of your way of entering into this participatory dance? We'll end with this quote. It's from Thomas Curry. He says this about the passage we read today. He says, in the end, this is a text of celebration of abundance to wandering Arameans and others who have been confused, to people living in a strange land who find themselves oppressed by hard taskmasters, to those who feel trapped in impossible situations and yet find themselves surprisingly delivered, to all of us who are struggling clumsily to say thank you with our lives. Let's enter into that kind of response to the promised lands we've been entered into. And so, Jesus, we want to give you uh, a generous heart in response to the generous heart you have toward us. And I pray for those in this room who um, don't know how to open up their hand in light of the reality they're facing, Uh, we trust that you just... uh, you provide such mercy and kindness. Would you meet them? Would you provide? And for those who are celebrating abundance, ah, we, we join that party too. And so regardless of where we find ourselves, we want to take a step toward participating with you. Would you help us to do that uh, in ways that are discerned and in ways that are worship? In Jesus' name, amen.